Spread the fire, welcome back to SMWX. And we are back with in-person interviews for the first time in goodness knows how long. And I couldn't be more excited to bring you this conversation with Lukona Mguni, a thinker, scholar, broadcaster, and someone whose opinions on South African politics I respect and value very much. So in this collaboration with the Mail and Guardian, our first guest is none other than Lukona. The Cizwe Mbofu Welsh Experience Podcast. Kokeli, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, my leader. Uh, it's good to join you and congratulations on this uh, perfect partnership that really affirms the work that you've been doing with SMWX. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. And you're someone who's really been driving this conversation about South Africa after the ANC. We need to start envisioning a new and a different country. Do you think the ANC is really dead? Well, I think it's not really about uh, the death of the ANC per se. Mm. It's really an objective question about whether or not the ANC remains fit for purpose to drive this country forward and to fulfill its own self-professed mandate of being the leader of society. Mm. And my estimation, and this has been my estimation for the last decade now is that the ANC has actually run its course mm. and needs to be relieved from no longer the duty but the burden of <laughs> power and ruling because for them it's really become burdensome to rule. You can imagine forcing people to wake up and go do something that they are incapable of fulfilling. Mm. Mm. That's true. I mean, some people suggest that, look, Ramaphosa's first term may not have gone as planned, um, as some of uh, the Imbongi were predicting in 2018. <laughs> we won't mention names. But that with the second term, he can get a, a further grip should he, should he win on, on ANC power. And in fact, you know, we shouldn't prematurely declare that the ANC can't renew itself. What's your view on, 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 that, on that take? Well, look at one of the greatest people who were praised singing, uh, President Ramaphosa, Peter Bruce, mm. editor at large. Mm. Mm. Yesterday, the Sunday the 22nd mm. of May 2022, mm. Peter Bruce wrote an article that literally says, Django uh, Pilato washing his hands of Jesus, hey, I wash my hands of this president do what you want to do with him as society mm. and he really ends off on a on a note even looking forward to the soon to be launched book by Songa Zozibi titled manifesto he says maybe it will help us think through uh, what to do in 2024 mm. but what is quite clear i mean uh, you go to another one who, who, who used to praise uh, ramaphosa quite uh, significantly melanie fervoot at mm. news 24 she long got hurtful uh, with the president if i were to use Why that are you word with people one by uh, one? no 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 because <laughs> i think there is good uh, work in us reminding people uh, how they have at some point failed the country mm. by the way because the whole narrative that was being driven to say to society things under President Ramaphosa would change uh, was actually a false narrative. 
the likes of Bobani, I'm forgetting his name. Mm -hmm. uh, the likes of Bobani, you know, in the Sunday Time pages, mm -hmm. uh, would be very optimistic about uh, this president. Mm -hmm. And yet, as uh, some of us, including yourself, Kaya's Tolles, Tembile Mbete, and others, were quite clear that nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to change. Instead, there is a danger of being sucked by the Ramaphoria, mm. take off the accountability measures that we had built over time, mm. the robust investigative journalism, the robust civil society that was calling for accountability, the robust scholarship that was being done to protect our democratic institutions and make sure that everybody is focused on the task of caring about the South Africa that we want. The Ramaphoria, what it did, was to relax people, so save South Africa no longer needed to exist. Instead of advocating for change, we now saw the leader of Save South Africa, Sipopijana, going around signing uh, deals, whether it's at the job summit or whatever, with the president, now suddenly rising to the high table himself. And this is the problem of South African politics. Too much focus on the personalities, and not the organizations and institutions that run our politics. And as a result, the hope that the ANC would renew itself is not premised on anything rather than the types of individuals who are seen going around, uh, you know, championing organizational renewal. So you suddenly see uh, former President Tabombegi coming out of his retirement and being very active in ANC structures, mm -hmm. uh, but to his own admission at the ANC Youth League's, uh, you know, uh, political education school uh, yesterday, he, he, even though he had visited the Eastern Cape, spent a few days there with the extended provincial executive committee, he still concludes the provincial the provincial conference which was electing in the Eastern Cape was nothing more than just people on a race for positions. There was no discussion of policy, there were no commissions, there was no discussion of the organizational reports and the political reports. All they did the whole weekend was fight about credentials so that they could secure the people who needed to be elected. In an environment like that, where the culture, the practice, has shifted so much from tradition of dialogue, being deliberate in how you, you know, uh, consider policies, coming out with a mandate. You now have an ANC that is actually electing people with absolutely no mandate. Mm -hmm. And you cannot then be hopeful that this organization is going to renew itself. Now, because the ANC is an old institution, well-resourced in terms of the infrastructure any political party can have, yeah. therefore making it resilient as an organization. It takes time for such an organization to die, mm -hmm. if ever. But what citizens have an opportunity to do is not to be bound to its death and its collapse to the point that it eventually becomes the death and collapse of the country. You know, you say so much that I, wanna, that I want to tease out, but one of the things you say that I think we possibly haven't spoken about enough is the way that the Ramaphoria moment, which I'm glad to say is now nearly a thing of the past. Mm. There are only just a few people clutching onto you know, the, the last vestiges of that, that idea. 
It created an accountability vacuum right at the moment when accountability was starting to build on the ANC. And you look at two institutions in our country, private media and NGOs, which are so crucial in many ways to the accountability that we've seen since democracy, holding senior politicians to account. And they basically allowed the president and the, thereby the ANC in many ways free reign for nearly three years. Um, they just didn't touch the, the highest seat of power. And that in many ways has set us back in terms of presidential accountability many, many years. In fact, um, much more was allowed, which shouldn't have been. Uh, they gave President Ramaphosa a free pass. That's what he enjoyed. For the longest time, presidents, after the State of the Nation address, would have a media sit down to be probed. Uh, who can forget the likes of Sisnigiwe Bikicha, you know, probing presidents on their State of the Nation address or Abu Fiyomvoko and others, right? Uh, they would have that opportunity. Uh, not once has this president uh, done that kind of media tour of visiting various, um, or at least inviting various broadcasters to do a question and answer on the content of the State of the Nation address. Similarly, the same happened with um, the January 8 statement uh, in 2019, and then in 2020 in Kimberley, tried to do that roundtable, and then in 2021, again did it and did it with other digital media. That's how I got to mm. interview him, for Probably example. Probably one of the best interviews uh, with the thank, president. Thank you, Lina. I'm still waiting for some of the follow-ups. The, the follow-ups follow that <laughs> need to happen, of course, empty promises, yeah. typical of politicians. Mm. But mm. I got to interview him uh, right mm. as well, 2021, January. But mm. the media had given a free pass to a point that Sanef had to plead and beg to be given sessions with the president. Once the president started committing, there were inconsistencies, and now there is a call for more engagements with the president. You see the manner in which the engagements in parliament have not changed. I mean, this is the president who was promising us a new dawn, and a new dawn we thought would be accompanied by new behavior, a new political culture in how the state is managed uh, to the point that we would expect the president to voluntarily ask for more sessions with parliamentarians to attend to their questions. Uh, but he has not. So this president has not in actual fact uh, demonstrated an appetite to be held to account. Uh, if anything, he appears a bit jittery uh, when confronted by the media to a point that it, if you could hide, he would. Now. The, the, the problem you are stating is that the, the conduct of those who were doing the accountability work uh, during the former president Zuma years, uh, it seems as if they also got fatigued. Unfortunately, the nature of democracy does not allow people to get fatigued from their day-to-day -day action. And that's why some of us have been consistent to hold power to account at the risk of being labeled RET forces when you have never seen what RET is yeah. and where they meet. Uh, you are told that you are being paid to hate the president. Yeah. And I wish I was getting such money. I would be rich. At least <laughs> I'd be accused, uh, you know, I'd be accused of things that I'm doing. Yeah. But yeah. the truth is that you polarize society by focusing on personalities 
and not the institutions and not the organizations. So then there is a free pass on the NPA. How is Shamila Patoi's NPA different um, to Sean Abraham's NPA at the level of doing serious and real prosecutorial work. Mm -hmm. Leave that uh, Sean Abrams might have been seen entering Lutuli House, mm -hmm. but Shamila Badoi, when she took her position, she was speaking the same language as politicians. She made an entire speech about how state capture should be stopped and never to be repeated again. Mm -hmm. We just wanted her to prosecute people. Mm -hmm. Almost how many years now? Three years into the job. We are yet to see serious work being done. Mm -hmm. The backlogs in high-profile cases have not been sped up. Uh, the turnaround time in terms of when people are charged and when trial starts has not been turned around. I'm not talking about people talking, t telling us the complex matters and so on. Let's just deal with those that they felt were prosecution ready and were taken to the courts. Why are we still seeing people charged and two years later the case has not started? Mm -hmm. These are serious questions of accountability that we must ask. Recently, Pravin Godan the Minister of uh, Public State uh, 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 Enterprises, uh, Public Enterprises, has sold off uh, SAA under very mysterious conditions, where even Treasury says we were not consulted, we were not involved, there was no proper valuation and all of this. Um, I have a complaint that is being handled by one of the Chapter 9 institutions on that uh, since June last year. I am not going to go into it because I want them to do their work mm -hmm. without public pressure. But who else has tried to stop this SAA deal? Yeah. We veer away from principle because we are no longer happy with SAA. It's a part of our fiscal drainage. We are throwing money into a dark hole. But that does not absent the principle that you should follow when you dispose of state assets. Absolutely. And the people who are doing accountability work, had this been done, under former President Jacob Zuma's government, there would have been a flurry of an uproar. Mm. But because we must play nice now, the moment is not right for us to be robust. Mm. And unfortunately, those who remain put on the work to achieve accountability start being othered Absolutely. as the fringe noise. Mm. And that is problematic for our society, problematic for our democracy. Well, you and I have taken our fair share of flack of because, because of that stance that we took right from the get-go. And we were equally critical of uh, former President of Zuma course. and his of ANC. Um, but having said that, and, and I wanted to just lay the ground for the crisis we're in with the ANC to move to a question about what comes after the ANC. Because it, it feels to me that there's a sense of hopelessness that has taken hold in our country. And we are unable to think beyond this crisis. It feels like we have just resigned ourselves to um, this moment of failure and, and we don't see anything after that. And you've been one of the voices suggesting that actually we need to reinvigorate this vision for what comes after the ANC. Do you think that a post-ANC South Africa can actually give us, give us hope for, for our future? Oh, absolutely. And um, as a matter of course, it should deliver that hope. But not only hope, it uh, should change our fortunes as a people of South Africa. It should make us uh, feel more secured. It should make us uh, feel proud to belong to this country. It's not hoisting some 22 million rands flag at 100 meters uh, high that's going to make you feel proud to be South African. 
it's seeing a government that delivers on its mandate as per the constitution, but its promises as per those who would have been campaigning, uh, making various promises to society as a way of gaining a mandate uh, uh, tabled in their manifestos. But South Africans have a serious responsibility in shaping that post-ANC future. So when I've been, when I started making these calls, it was just to say, in the popular psyche of society, you've got to try and embed in people the possibility of the ANC losing power. Because you can't get to the then what after the ANC when people still don't imagine a sense that South Africa could be without the ANC. And you do that for democratic gains purpose. We've struggled with people who have a mantra that says, I will vote for the ANC until I die. Now, that means whether the ANC becomes severely kleptocratic, whether the ANC becomes severely incapable to manage the state, they will still vote for the ANC. This absents any democratic application in that choice. Because democracy calls upon us to have the freedom to associate, but we do this association through membership and through support. You don't have to belong, but by giving a support and, a, and an X to a particular party, you are affiliating or associating with that political party. But we also have a commitment and we are duty bound by a social contract that represents all of us, which is the constitution. Now, whether we agree that there are problems in the constitution or no problems in the that's a different story. All those conversations and debates are about to say what is the best constitution we deserve but for now there is a present one and that present one deserves all of us to promote to respect and to uphold and our vote at times can take away from the promotion of the constitution from the respect of the constitution and from the constitution being upheld and so when we go vote we also need and this is why you would have had the debates people talking about the need for political education for voter education to demonstrate how powerful a tool the vote is and what it can determine uh, for the future pathways of a country, whether you go towards being a fragile state uh, where we are, and some people have been concerned whether or not we are about to become a failed state, or you go on a different path of development, uh, of uh, social well-being, of economic empowerment, environmental sustainability, and quite a sustainable future for our children and future generations. So, Lukona, we've spoken about what's wrong and we've diagnosed the crisis. But I think the question that we haven't maybe arrived at in public debate sufficiently yet is what could potentially replace this? What are the visions for South Africa's future or futures that can re-energize and, and cause us to reimagine where we could be? Um, so, so can I put it to you, what, what the ANC goes out of power tomorrow. Um, and we have a chance and we have a blank canvas in front of us to create um, the next version of this republic. Where do we go from there? Well, let's first talk about in the present form. If we said they were to leave power tomorrow, sure. so you'd have to deal with the present moment and what you have. Sure. And by the way, it's either you prepare mm. for the 
eventuality that the ANC loses power yeah. or you don't and just allow for natural succession mm -hmm. amongst the current political actors. Sure. Some research that we are busy with indicates that um, a significant share of the South African population, and that's about 45%, 52%, is unwilling to support any political party. Mm. They just don't have faith. And we're targeting people above 18 because they can vote. They just don't have faith in political parties in their current forms in South Africa. Sure, sure. And as a result of this, um, post-ANC life looks like a chaotic uh, assemblage of a coalition uh, that is just there to fill up the vacuum and leave the ANC out of power, but it's not really united by any set of principles, goals, policy positions, and priorities for the country. Sure. So the work that I believe, now that it seems uh, popularity of this idea is gaining traction, that there, there is life and there will be life after the ANC is to now then work backwards and start preparing for that. Yeah. The first is to develop a set of priorities yeah. to which there is some degree of consensus from as many quarters of society as possible. Yeah. You are not going to rebuild from this current morass the country is in by being divisive, polarizing, fundamentalist, and all of those things that generally alienate people and leave you with your own smaller group. Sure, sure. You need, um, and I know people like abusing this thing of a UDF of today, mm -hmm. but what you need is a political movement that is going to have broad appeal in the South African society. Mm -hmm. So the ideologues must feel that they are comfortable in it as the purists might be, as people who are non-affiliated in terms of ideology and it must be representative in the true sense of it and representation of course in South Africa is not just a question of race and gender it's about spatial divide um, how do you make sure that uh, this political movement talks to the people um, of Soweto as it does to the people of uh, Manenberg and, 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 the, and so the story goes some people have to raise their hands at some point to lead that work of one, developing the set of priorities because I think where we are, there is beginning to be mutual vulnerability. So I was with a big business in KwaZulu-Natal at a forum called the KZN Growth Coalition. Um, it invites business and government in the province and asked us to make a presentation there. As I listened to the concerns business was raising, I realized that actually the top priority now for business is crime. It's no longer market access, value chain, uh, this and that. It's crime. The biggest fear that ordinary citizens have is safety, whether it's criminality, whether it's gender-based violence, whether it is contact crime, whether it is this. So you are starting to see an intersection of interests solve the safety problem in South Africa. Once different sectors of society with very different interests in terms of their material well-being yeah. start to share priorities in terms of what needs to be solved, 
you have a better platform to try and be consensus building. Because you then say, well, we may want the land, we may uh, want the democratized economy, we may want the best education outcomes. But when we read a front page of a newspaper that says there is a teacher in a school in KwaZulu-Natal who silences counterparts and students who disagree with her with her gun. Surely there's something wrong in our society. When we read about hashtag justice for Namla and the kind of abuse she was subjected to uh, by this partner for 17 years until she met her demise at nine bullets, uh, we, we must understand that something is fundamentally wrong with our society. When construction sites can be stopped in KwaZulu-Natal or in Pretoria because some group demands 30% of the project and they, not, they are not willing to put in 30% of the work. So you start realizing that there's mutual vulnerability which, which cuts across class interests and class groups in society. That is the window of opportunity to start imagining the South Africa beyond this ANC government, which then says you will need a cohort of leaders who are credible, who are trustworthy, whom when they say they are going to walk five kilometers, you know they are going to walk five kilometers. Who when they say they are not going to steal, you believe that they are not going to steal until otherwise. Currently, we have a problem where government has lost so much trust in society that whatever they propose as a project, even if it is noble, there's just this skepticism mm. that no, they are doing it for their own selfish gain. And now we have a problem where funds can't even be released timelessly for flood victims in KwaZulu-Natal and the Eastern Cape because there is a fear that people are going to squander uh, disaster relief funds. Uh, we saw government officials uh, tapping into the 350 rands grants for unemployed people, which was meant to be a grant for social relief. So we actually have a serious problem that the state is in the hands of people who are no longer trusted, is in the hands of people who do not demonstrate that they are regaining the trust of society, is in the hands of people who do not demonstrate an appetite not to steal from the public. They say they are dealing with corruption, but the results show something else. Even those who do not steal, as long as they don't put systems, controls, checks, and balances to ensure that there's no thievery, because the people who are stealing uh, still have some influence in terms of their political uh, careers going forward. So this is the a relationship you need to break because once you start saying to South Africans start choosing people to drive the conversation of the future you want you may actually be surprised Siswe, that uh, the post ANC you may look for might be a coalition but there would be a united consensus around some political movement that represents a significant share of the electorate that then helps you to stabilize whatever coalition you might get. So I hear, I hear you on that. And two or three things, just, just as we try and work towards this, and, and I think we're already deeper into this conversation than, than we have seen um, in, in the South African media. The first is, yes, some kind of new political movement, but is it one movement or is it a collection of, of actors? Because I think that one isolated political movement as strong as it could be may find itself surrounded by by um, 
forces that, that want to undermine it. Whereas you may well need a political movement, you may need, in addition to that, several NGO movements, uh, you may need uh, civil society organizations in addition. So almost a network of movements rather than just uh, staking everything on the one. Or maybe you even need like two or three different political movements. Um, I'm just thinking of the nature and the shape of this new force. You know, should it be one consolidated thing or should it be more of a, a network-based thing? So that's the one thing. The second thing um, I, I'm wondering about what your thoughts are on is how do we phase what is changed after the ANC? Because I hear you, I mean, public safety, that sounds like an interesting first, first move, but ultimately this is going to be a multi-generational project. So the question is, what, is what, what does phase one look like? Then what does phase two and phase three look like? Because it seems to me that after the ANC falls, there's going to be a period where it's literally just reconstruction almost like we're, we're after a disaster and we just need to first reconstruct before we can even go Absolutely. anywhere. Um, so yeah, those are just some, some reactions and responses as we try and think through what this moment really would look like. Well, let, let's deal with the first. In other jurisdictions, they talk of this as a, a, an umbrella. So whether you go to Kenya, whether you go to Zambia, uh, we are seeing now the coalition uh, the, the of the change movement in Zimbabwe that's going to have a go again yeah. and try win elections of ZANU-PF. But that language in South Africa is, is, is not a popular form of language. So the language of a political movement in South Africa seems to be quite apt and something that people can resonate with, but you are quite you are quite right. So let, let's take a step back to uh, the first of November, twenty twenty one, local government elections, and ask what happened there. Yeah. We have seen in a number of municipalities, whether you are in Cedarburg, whether you are in Malutia Pufong, whether you are in Makanda, mm -hmm. uh, whether you are uh, in some parts of Mpumalanga, you, you know, we have seen civic movements, Newcastle. Um, in KwaZulu-Natal, we have seen civic movements forming themselves around service delivery issues across the divide of uh, space. I mean, in Makana, it's even interesting, uh, people from the township and people from the suburbs got together and formed this uh, civic uh, organization, and they won some decent seats there. Now, but the problem with those movements is that they may not have muscle for scale. And because they were formed to resolve local issues, there is no guarantee that the outlook of the very same people suffering from local problems is the same on national and provincial questions. But one of the things that I think this movement I, I have in mind would have to do uh, is to really converse these civic organizations that have already been successful. Not in the form uh, that our good friend uh, Musi Maimane started off as putting a coalition of independent candidates. No, but putting a coalition of actors from across the political and civic movement spectrum who will give legitimacy. Because I think the biggest question for any kind of movement that it will confront is how will it source its legitimacy? And in my mind, I think it will source its legitimacy if it has networked 
its ideas and possible solutions with a vast array of organizations. And this is not just about those civic movements. Uh, where will you be on the question of uh, the black professional lobby groups, for example, uh, black business lobby groups? But also, what language will you be speaking to uh, the Afrikaner farmers who are quite organized, uh, uh, your Afri forums and the likes? And um, you must be very clear on your non-negotiables, very flexible on certain issues that uh, may be negotiated so that you build as much consensus. Because if this moment beyond the ANC is to give hope, it must be driven by organizations and it need not be one. I agree with you. It may be two, it may be three, but once there's too much on offer, citizens might switch off and begin to think that the people who are driving these movements are in it for themselves. They want to just join uh, the chaotic concert of coalition politics rather than solve issues for society. So there has to be an attempt to try and build as much consensus as possible amongst those who are interested. By the way, there are a number of these movements that are already starting. Uh, you just see on social media, uh, you see in society, people are organizing and trying to answer this question of 2024. But they are in small pockets, they are not nationally organized, they don't have scale, and I think over time you will see those efforts starting to join hands and give each other scale. So that's the one. So this network of issues, um, of how you form uh, this, it will really be making sure it has as much legitimacy in as many quarters as possible. Okay, day one, let's you know, there would be these coalitions and this new movement would be somewhere within that, but then five years down the line, 10 years yeah. down the line, there would need to be a, a longer term vision. Absolutely. In order to first reconstruct and rebuild and then actually thrive and prosper. I mean, you use a, an analogy of a disaster. Mm. You evacuate people, you give them temporary shelter, mm. and then over time, you either reintegrate them depending on the nature of the disaster or you relocate them. Yeah. But that's all part of the vision for society. And just on that, sorry, but the communication of that is would be so key because everyone's going to be celebrating that the ANC has fallen and yeah. expecting that load shedding will end tomorrow. Absolutely and, not. <laughs> and now you have to come in and say, the ANC has fallen, but unfortunately for three years, we literally as a society just need to reconsolidate and Absolutely. it's going to be painful. Absolutely. And you need to be very stern and firm on the painful parts. What the ANC has tried to do when confronted with painful decisions is still trying to play nice. Where there's pain, there's pain. And there might be no laughter. Sometimes there is, but in, it's seasonal. So you, you need to be firm on where the pain points will be. So I think what people are looking for now, even with load shedding, I think people are no longer asking whether it's going to happen or not. But don't take me out of stage three today and then I'm on stage four tomorrow, then it's stage two, then it's gone, then it's back and so on. Some predictability. Human beings love predictability because they love control. Yes, as long as you know and I can plan my life around these issues. And this is why in our personal relationships, we are actually quite averse towards individuals who are inconsistent in their behavior, whether it's through phone calls or you think you are the only one servicing the relationship and so on. So you need to service the post-ANC relationship with a social 
hey, I'm going to use this word, compact, as President Ramaphosa <laughs> uses this word. But you do need to have a sense where society is happy and breathes. And then you say to them, well, indicator one is that first year in office, irregular expenditure would have decreased. Because guess what? Putting systems in place for procurement might be painful, but it's not difficult, nor is it rocket science. So give people the markers. I'm going to clean out the law enforcement agencies. I suppose that would be one of the phase one. Because once you collapse the rule of law by corrupting law enforcers, by making sure that law enforcers don't know what they're doing, by making sure that law enforcers are outnumbered and outpaced by the growth of corruption, the growth of criminality, and all these things that make us unsafe, unfortunately, you are not going to be able to build a country. And that's tied to the public safety priority. Absolutely. Because the problem of, of fighting crime is not necessarily one of those who perpetrate crime, you know, thinking they, the problem is that those who perpetrate crime know they can get away with it. Yes. And the way you solve that is not necessarily harsher sentences or, or pretending like, you know, we're going to get more uh, harsh on crime. It's just creating that expectation that if I do something wrong, there are institutions Absolutely. which are capable enough to hold me Absolutely. to account, which we don't have. There's a break-in at my house. Why must I be told that I must not touch anything until a forensic comes to take fingerprints and then it's day one after the break-in you need to sleep mm -hmm. so if I don't touch anything I'm going to sleep in an even more unsafe uh, space mm -hmm. and then three days down the line forensics has not come has never come there are parts of provinces where there is no one who can take fingerprints yeah. right you need to wait for somebody to come from another province mm -hmm. or from the capital city of the province and so on so when we talk about these issues, though, you start building the capacity for the rule of law. And my contention is that you can't have the rule of law without making sure that the institutions tasked with the enforcement of the law are capable. And that's your Honestly speaking, if people begin to feel safer, they can even think better. Sometimes we can't even think these innovative ideas that they are looking for can't come because we are always in a state of panic. That's not a healthy mind space to be in. So that may be your phase one. And then your phase two would be to say, now that we can think better, now that we can act better, now that businesses have confidence to open longer hours, maybe we can start employing people. Maybe people will no longer be scared to invest in this area because it's notorious for criminality, for all of these things that are undesirable to do business. And therefore, the economic activity may start showing signs of um, a, a recovery. But you also have to tackle, Sizwe, unfortunately, some things that society holds dear, uh, such as your road accident fund. I mean, just that one institution, the exposure that government has is in the billions. And I don't think people appreciate how much of a fiscal threat some of these things are. It's nice that uh, if you get into a car accident, you survive, um, you, you can get some money from the state. But we've been looking around. Some countries don't have this road accident fund. And if you were to remove it, how do you repurpose the debt so that it is not impacting on the state negatively? 
but what does that imply for the ref uh, portion of the fuel, for example? Does it mean you can scrap it and then your fuel costs go down? These are part of the painful parts uh, to say that if you no longer have a ref regime, what is the commitment of government um, to victims of road accidents? Well, part of it is just to make sure that you continuously drive down the rate of your road accidents. I mean, the road carnage we have mm. is not even a policy issue in South Africa. Instead, it's a, a, a parade for politicians during Easter, mm. shutting down parts of the M1 uh, so that they can run a campaign. But actually, in between those campaigns in December, there is no policy being driven for behavioral change in society. And there's only one attack, drinking and driving not the questions of fatigue, mm. not the questions of lawlessness, people, people overtaking each other on double barrier line, potholes that we hit and cause accidents, infrastructure, the design of our roads and all of these things uh, need to be part of this collective response. So I imagine that the phases, as you are saying, would really uh, be to rebuild, but the communication and consensus building for society to say, we'll take the pains, we accept, but give us something back. And you give back to society by cutting down irregular expenditure, by redesigning the architecture of the state. I mean, you know we've been talking about this question of provinces for a very long time. The ANC used to debate this in its policy conferences. If you go back to some of their debates uh, in the late 90s, in the early 2000s, there was always something about provinces. It has now suddenly died. Yet you've got to take those painful decisions and demonstrate to people if you were to re-architecture uh, the state, these would be the benefits in terms of a, a nimble state that is responsive to people's demands, cutting down the bureaucratic chains. It doesn't help to appoint somebody in the presidency and say they are going to cut the red tape. Sometimes the red tape is caused by how layered the state mm -hmm. is. And maybe it's about time we take away one of the spheres of government so that there is quick response in terms of policy, policy implementation, monitoring and, 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 and evaluation and open up the fiscal space to do things for society. Well, I think what you're saying is actually, you know, giving me an interesting idea that, you know, the first phase of some kind of post-ANC world would be building trust and, and rebuilding and reconstructing and using those small wins of, you know, getting basics right to build trust within within the, the population that, you know what, this thing is actually working. And once you've done that, you can then say, okay, we have now as a country got some of the basics right. Let's move on to some of the structural long-term problems. Let's look at, you know, provinces. Let's look at the electoral system or let's look at something that's deeply structural. You can't just run and do a structural thing before Absolutely. anyone actually believes you can achieve it. But once you have created the, the trust, you can then say, listen, this structural thing can unlock more growth, it can unlock more uh, dynamism. And I want to ask you on that uh, to end off. You've done a lot of thinking on the electoral system. So what are the potential levers there that we can, we can pull that could make a post-ANC future a more responsive political system? It's one to give communities an opportunity to elect people they know. Now this is not about independent candidates alone. Mm. This is even for people who would make it to party lists. Sure. They must originate from communities. Mm. Mm. The crisis we have with the current system 
the what we call the closed list system. So the party entirely decides the order of names and who the names are and are not. Is that you elect the party, yeah. it then decides, and then parliament uh, sort of uh, starts uh, identifying constituencies mm -hmm. for these parliamentarians, uh, along with the parliamentarians. So you find that a person from Flagstaff in the Eastern Cape where I'm from um, has a constituency office in Kwanongoma, in KwaZulu-Natal, where they have no social capital, they are not networked, they know nothing, and there might even be language barriers, and therefore can't actually resolve local issues there because they are not immersed in that community. Sure. So that's the first problem with the current system we have. So the, one of the wins that we can have, just like we do in local government, generally people are electing people they know, whether they're from the ANC or the EFF or the DA or independent candidates, but it's people who somewhat have connections mm. with the locality. And I think that's what we need, a degree of constituency-based elections with a complementary list that is proportional. The numbers you can debate on another day, yeah. but I think uh, uh, conceptually that's what you need. The second one mm. that we need is a sense that people can be recalled mm. by their constituencies. Mm. Uh, so there have been a lot of debates around what we call a recall clause, which means that maybe after two years in office, a community can petition the IEC, and if X number of registered voters in that constituency petition the IEC, it triggers a by-election. And the person who is being uh, you know, uh, recalled can still stand, and therefore it would be uh, what some jurisdictions call a confidence vote. Um, you still have confidence in this person to represent you, and if you win the confidence vote, well and good, continue doing your work. Now, people think that this would be chaotic. Maybe in its formative stages, it would and could be chaotic, in the sense that people may just want to willy-nilly recall individuals, trigger by-elections, administratively burden some from, for the IEC. But sometimes you've got to pay for democratization and the maturity of your democracy. And so these are some of the ideas that it would at least help build a more responsive, people-centered way of public representation. Because your representatives know that they originate from communities, know that those communities can exercise some degree of power. Currently, the system, unfortunately, has no ability for the ordinary citizens to hold anybody to account, let alone those who are in government, uh, the parliamentarians as well. So we need a system that starts to solve those issues. If we don't get that system, unfortunately, we will continue with the big man syndrome of political parties. Uh, they are the alpha and the omega. If an, if, because the constraining parts you know, with the current system is that it centers political parties. So less than 15 political parties actually determine the fate of South Africa. If you work with majoritarianism principles, only one political party determines. Now people are fearful of a hung parliament, and this is where the ideas of a direct election for the president comes in, that the president would then source his or her a vote and mandate directly from the populace and not currently as it is done from the National Assembly. These are all ideas that we have to uh, deal with because then you can have a hung parliament but still have a, a well-elected president 
who can constitute a government and move on. Mm. There are pros and cons to all of these of things, course, yeah. but these are the debates that we should be having to ask this question on how do you make a much more responsive state? How do you make sure that the power really belongs to the people, even though it remains uh, representative? Well, Mukona, thanks so much for, for joining us. Thanks so much for joining Mail and Guardian, SMWX being our first guest on this new project and for showing us the freshness that comes with thinking after the ANC. Uh, we really appreciate your time. No, thank you. And thank you for you know staying put on this subject. And I hope that it really benefits uh, South Africans to begin taking ownership of their future and asking themselves very deep questions. I'm already seeing an interesting temperature where people appear concerned about the 2024 elections. You, you can't just be concerned about them only, but people have to also ask what forms of organizing are they looking for, but also what forms of action are they willing to take in order to safeguard their future. Thank you so much. Aye. The Caesar and Welsh Experience, Experience Podcast. Podcast. Aye, aye, aye.